0: Hello everybody, thanks for tuning in with your listening ears. I am once again your gracious dedicated humble host, Paul Anthony Walker, and it's the Paul Anthony Walker Podcast. Now, um, I know a lot of people always want to um quote Martin Luther King Jr. You know, I hear time the time again. Uh, but to the ones out there that only know that i have a dream speech and don't really know nothing else about martin luther king jr what he actually stood for um i'm going to play a interview um from dr martin luther king uh, what a late great dr martin luther king should i say and um it's pretty much going to change some of you minds out there that uh, always uh, running with this I have a dream speech and um having taken your time to actually do your research on Dr. Martin Luther King. Um not only was he uh, a brilliant um leader but he also um was speaking about a lot of things um uh, pertaining to reparations. Um I think this interview um, I might have to pull up another one, but, uh, it's still informative, you know, but, uh, with the whole reparations thing, he does speak about it, you know, about, um, the government, you know, that they owe us, you know, they owe our ancestors and stuff like that. So I'm going to basically, um, pull up that interview, um, later on, but I definitely want, um, Um, Some of you out there that uh, has never um, heard a Juan Luther King Jr. interview, you know, instead of you probably look at the little clips of him, him, of him speaking in Washington, (laughs) D.C. I have a dream speech. That's the only one majority of you probably um, heard of, you know, but sit back, um, take in. What the late the great Martin Luther King Jr. Um, has to say, uh, give me one minute as I pull up um the interview.
1: This church is as good a place as any to go back over your commitment to the civil rights movement. When you went, out from here in the university and then you went to Montgomery, Alabama and started the bus boycotts there. What was the philosophy of the civil rights movement as you saw it
2: then, more than 10 years ago? Well, I would say then the philosophy was that we must go all out to use legal and nonviolent methods to gain full citizenship rights uh, for the Negro people of our country. Uh, Of course, uh, that particular struggle and that philosophy centered on breaking down all of the barriers of legal segregation. So I would say that in that period, uh, the basic thrust for the gaining of citizenship rights for Negroes uh, was to end uh, the humiliation surrounding the whole system of legal segregation. Dr. King, was there something peculiar
1: to the place where you started, and the kind of people you attracted. I mean by that, there was a strong attachment on the part of your parishioners in Montgomery
2: to the church. They were older people, weren't they? Yes, I would say by and large, they were older people who uh, participated in the boycott because they were the ones using the bus bus more than anybody else, and uh, Montgomery was a community, predominantly church senate, so that uh, it was very easy to get to the vast majority of Negroes, because they were in some way connected with a church in the community.
1: Sir, in addition to your commitment to the idea of nonviolence, wasn't it also the only thing you could do? the white community having the monopoly on violence, that if you had tried violence, they would have met it with violence. It was the only device
2: open to you, wasn't it? Well, I'll put it another way, that uh, morally I was led to nonviolence because I felt that it was the best moral way to deal with the problem. We were seeking to establish a just society. And uh, it was my feeling then and it is my feeling now that uh, violence is certainly much more uh, socially destructive and it creates many more social problems than it solves. So I was led to nonviolence for deep moral reasons. Now there is no doubt about the fact that in our struggle in Montgomery and all over the United States for that matter, nonviolence is also practically sound. Uh, It would just be impractical for the Negro to turn to violence. He has neither the instruments nor the techniques of violence. We are about 10 or 11 percent of the total population of the nation, and I would say we are about one tens of one percent of the firepower, so it would just be totally impractical and unwise and unrealistic for the Negro to think of violence. Well, I saw this in the beginning in uh, Montgomery, but this wasn't the basic reason that I uh, turned to nonviolence and that I believed in it as a philosophy. I turned to it because I felt that it was a morally excellent way to deal with the problem of racial injustice in our country. Is there something about nonviolence that made it, and I use that in the past
1: tense, that made it more useful among Southern Negroes than the ghetto
2: Negroes of the North? I wouldn't say there's uh, anything that makes it more useful to uh, Southern Negroes. I think it is true that uh, we've had more nonviolent movements in the South because. Uh, The problem for many years was more crystallized and, in a sense, more visible in the South. Uh, We didn't have many civil rights activities on a massive scale in the North until three or four years ago. So I would say that uh, we just haven't had a chance to experiment on a broad scale with nonviolence in the Northern ghetto. I have the feeling that nonviolence is as applicable Uh, and workable in the northern ghetto as it is uh, in the south. Uh, There's a larger job there. Uh, The frustrations at points are much deeper. The bitterness is deeper. And I think that's because in the south, we can see pockets of progress here and there. We've really made some strides that are very visible, and every southern Negro knows that he can do things today that he couldn't do four or five years ago. Wherein in the north, Uh, The Negro sees only retrogress, uh, and he doesn't find it as easy to get his vision centered on his target, the target of opposition, as he does in the South. Consequently, this is made for despair and at many points cynicism, a feeling that you can't win, and it simply means that we've got to develop in the North a massive job of organization and mobilizing forces and resources to deal with the problem in the urban ghettos of the North, just as we've done it in the South. Well, in the South, particularly in Alabama, you had visible villains. Jim Clark,
1: Bull Connor, cattle prods, police dogs. But in the North, you don't have those visible villains. Isn't it hard to get
2: your people aroused and directed at something that isn't visible? Well, that's exactly right, and this is what I was saying when I said it's harder to see a target. Uh, In the South, in the nonviolent movement, we were aided always, on the whole, by the brutality of our opponent. Uh, It isn't the same way in the uh, North. The other thing is that you don't have legal segregation uh, in the North as you do in the South. So it is much more difficult to get people to see exactly what you're doing, but uh, it isn't an impossible job. It's, uh, It's a hard, it's a tedious job at times to get people to be aroused from their apathetic slumbers, but I still feel that uh, Negroes in the North can be motivated just as they were motivated in the South. And I think as time goes on with the growing economic deprivation in the Negro community, it will even be easier because people will come to see that not only is something wrong in general, but something is wrong in particular in their own economic and housing situation. What is it? I mean, how do you find it? Uh, It's very subtle in the North, is it not? It's subtle, but it's uh, becoming much more visible. Uh, uh, Anybody can see that the schools are more segregated in the North today than they were in 1954 when the Supreme Court rendered its decision declaring segregation unconstitutional. Anybody can look around the ghetto and see that ghetto schools are predominantly segregated and devoid of quality. Anyone who moves through a major ghetto of our country will see the housing conditions. Uh, People don't have to be reminded that they are forced to live in slums in many instances, and they're often rat-infested vermin-filled slums. And it isn't too hard to see the exploitation that the Negro confronts in the ghetto, where he is forced to pay Uh, more for less and constantly trying to make ends meet, but because of either no job as a result of unemployment or a job that is so uh, economically unprofitable that the person can't make ends meet. And I think they see all of these things and more and more They are coming to see them because before the people of the North were looking to the South and they supported the struggles of the South, now they are coming to see that their problems are very real and they've got organized to grapple with them.
1: Was there something hypocritical about the fact that the South existed and the North could point the finger and then when the Civil Rights Acts were passed in the early 60s,
2: you couldn't point the finger anymore? Well, there was no doubt about the hypocrisy of uh, large segments of the nation on the whole question of of racial equality. I think the best example is that many of the senators from the North and the West and congressmen generally who voted for civil rights legislation in 64 and even 65 with the voting rights bill refused last year to vote for civil rights legislation because it dealt with an issue applicable to the North, the whole housing question. And uh, this, it seems to me, was the greatest expression of the hypocrisy of uh, many of our citizens and many of the senators and congressmen of the North.
1: But isn't that part of the dilemma now? that people knew that Negroes were being denied, what was guaranteed to them by the Constitution, by the fact that they were citizens of this country, then when they were given those rights, do you feel the white community said, well, we've
2: given them all that we have, now it's up to them? Well, I think the dilemma is much deeper, and I think uh, one during this period of transition has to be very honest with America. And honesty impels me to admit that America has uh, broad racist elements still alive. Racism is still uh, existing in American society, in many areas of the society, North and South. And the other thing is that there has never been a single, solid, determined commitment of large segments of white America on the whole question of racial equality, Uh, I think we have to see that Vacillation has always existed, ambivalence has always existed, and this to me is the so-called white backlash. It's merely a new name for an old phenomenon. I see the white backlash as a continuation of the same ambivalence and vacillation of white America and the whole question of racial justice that has existed uh, since the founding of our nation. I think the other thing that uh, we must see at this time is that many of the people who supported us in Selma, in Birmingham, were really outraged about the extremist behavior toward Negroes. But they were not at that moment, and they are not now, committed to genuine equality for Negroes. It's much easier to integrate a lunch counter than it is to guarantee an annual income, for instance, to get rid of poverty for Negroes and all poor people. It's much easier to integrate a bus uh, than it is to make genuine integration a reality and quality education a reality in our schools. It's much easier to integrate even a public park than it is to get rid of slums. And I think we are in a new era, a new phase of the struggle, where we have moved from a struggle for decency, which characterized our struggle for 10 or 12 years, to a struggle for genuine equality. And this is where we are getting the resistance because there was never any intention uh, to go this far. People were reacting to Bull Connor and to Jim Clark rather than acting in good faith for the realization of genuine equality. Do
1: you think white people in this country, and I'm talking about non-segregation, as people devoid, or thinking they're devoid of racism, do you have any idea what they want the Negro to be in America?
2: Well, it depends on the level that we are talking here, uh, because I think you have to make a distinction between the people who are genuinely and absolutely committed in the white community on the question of of racial equality. And I must confess that I think they are in a very small minority. I think the vast majority of white Americans uh, will go but so far. It's a kind of installment plan for equality. And uh, they're always looking for an excuse Uh, To go but so far. Why are they looking for the excuse? What is it about the Negro?
1: I mean every other group that came as an immigrant somehow Not
2: easily but somehow got around it. Is it just the fact that Negroes are black? That's a part of it and growing that grows out of something else You can't thingify anything without depersonalizing that something. If you use something as a means to an end, at that moment you make it a thing and you depersonalize it. The fact is that the Negro was a slave in this country for 244 years. That act uh, that was uh, a willful thing that was done. The Negro was brought here and changed, treated in very human fashion. And this led to the thingification of the Negro. So he was not looked upon as a person. He was not looked upon as a human being with the same uh, status and worth as other human beings. And the other thing is that human beings cannot continue to do wrong without eventually uh, rationalizing that wrong. So slavery was justified morally, biologically, uh, theoretically, scientifically, everything else. And it seems to me that white America must see that no other ethnic group has been a slave on American soil. Uh, That is one thing that other immigrant groups haven't had to face. The other thing is that the color became a stigma. American society made the Negroes color a stigma. And uh, that can never be uh, overlooked. So I think these things are absolutely necessary. The other thing is that America freed the slaves in 19... I mean, 1863, through the Emancipation Proclamation of Abraham Lincoln, but gave the slaves no land or nothing in reality, and as a matter of fact, to to get started on. At the same time, America was giving away millions of acres of land in the West and the Midwest, which meant that there was a willingness to give the white peasants from Europe an economic base, and yet it refused to give its black peasants from Africa who came here involuntarily in chains and had worked free for 244 years any kind of economic base. And so emancipation for the Negro was really freedom to hunger. It was freedom uh, to the winds and rains of heaven. It was freedom without food to eat or land to cultivate and therefore it was freedom and famine at the same time. And when white Americans tell the Negro to lift himself by his own bootstraps, they don't, oh, they don't look over the legacy of slavery and segregation. I believe we ought to do all we can and seek to lift ourselves by our own bootstraps, but uh, it's a cruel jest to say to a bootless man that he ought to lift himself by his own bootstraps. And many Negroes, by the thousands and millions, have been left bootless as a result of all of these years of oppression and as a result of a society that deliberately made his color A stigma and something worthless and degrading
0: there you have it folks Um, I know it got longer I know it was gooder it was good Martin Luther King jr. Uh, those pretty much are the words that I was looking for to hear and I wanted child to hear Martin Luther King jr. get real you know, I think y'all want a little bit more of it, so I'm, I'm gonna uh, play the rest of it.
1: Apart from wanting to live better, which all of us want to do, to raise one's children in a better way, to be better,
2: does the Negro in America know what he wants to be? I'm convinced that uh, almost every Negro in this country, other than those who have been so scarred by the system that they've become pathological in the process, and we all have to battle with pathology, nobody really knows what it means uh, to be a Negro unless one can really experience it. And I know we all have to battle with this constant drain of uh, a feeling of nobodiness. But in spite of this, uh, I think the vast majority of Negroes in this country know that they want to be people they want to be men. They want equality, period. It just boils down to that. And we haven't been able to be people. We haven't been men because of all of the uh, conditions that we've lived with and the syndrome of deprivation surrounding conditions, whether it's in housing, uh, in the economic area, in schools, in the vicious credit practices that we face in the ghetto and All of the problems of closed doors and constant defeats. But uh, in spite of all this, I think we all know, uh, basically, that we want to be men. We want to be persons judged not on the basis of the color of our skin, but on the basis of the content of our character.
1: But you know that many young Negroes don't want anything that smacks of the American white middle class. But do they want something that smacks of whatever is the black middle class or do they just not want bourgeois values which after all the basis of
2: this democracy well i think uh we have to see what they are saying Uh, i would be the first to agree that uh, integration does not mean giving up everything that has an afro-american taint so to speak Our background. I think there are certain unique things within any culture and certain cultural patterns that when you get to the process of amalgamation can really lift the whole culture and it seems to me that integration at its best is the opportunity to participate in the beauty of diversity. I think the other thing that we've got to see is that these young people are saying that there must be a revolution of values in our country. As Jimmy Baldwin said on one occasion, what advantage is there in being integrated into a burning house? And I feel that uh, there is a need for a revolution of values in America because some of the values that presently exist are certainly out of line with the Uh, values and the idealistic structure uh, that brought our nation into being. Unfortunately we haven't been true to these ideals and many of the values of uh, so-called white middle-class society of values uh, that need to be reviewed and uh, reevaluated, and in a real sense, they need to be changed. So I think the young people in the Negro community who are raising these questions are raising some very profound questions about our total society. In other words, they are saying that there must be a restructuring of the architecture Uh, of our society where values are concerned and with this I would agree with so in the quest for integration I think we can offer our whole nation something because there are three evils in our nation it's not only racism but economic exploitation of poverty would be one and then militarism and I think in a sense and in a very real sense these three are tied inextricably together and we aren't going to get rid of one without getting rid of the other well you stood in the Lincoln
1: Memorial (laughs) that day in August 63 and you said I had a dream did that dream envision that you could see a war in Asia preventing the federal government doing for the Negroes preventing the society doing for the Negroes that which you
2: think had to be done no I didn't envision that then I must confess that That period was a great period of hope for me and uh, I'm sure for many others all across the nation, many of of the Negroes who had about lost hope, saw a solid decade of progress in the South and uh, in 1954, which was, I mean, 64, 1963, nine years after the Supreme Court's decision to be in the march on Washington, meant a great deal. It was a high moment, a great watershed moment. But I must confess that uh, that dream that I had that day has at many points turned into a nightmare. Now, I'm not one to lose hope. I keep on hoping. Uh, I still have faith in the future. But I've had to analyze many things over the last few years and I would say over the last few months. I've gone through a lot of soul searching and agonizing moments. And I've come to see that uh, we have uh, many more difficult days ahead. And some of the old optimism was a little superficial. And now it must be tempered with a solid realism. And I think the realistic fact is that we still have a long, long way to go. And that we are involved in a war on Asian soil. Uh, which, if not checked and stopped, can poison the very soul of our nation.
1: Dr. King, even if there had not been a war in Asia, would you still not have had this nightmare insofar as the Negro movement for equality then touched on two things that the white community holds
2: sacred, their children and their property? Oh, I have no doubt that we would have encountered great difficulties, great problems of resistance if the war had not uh, been in existence. So that I'm not going to say that all of our problems will be solved if the war in Vietnam is ended. But I do say that the war makes it infinitely more difficult to deal with these problems. Uh, When a nation becomes obsessed with the guns of war, Uh, it loses its social perspective, social uplift, suffer. This is just a a fact of history so that we do face many more difficulties uh, as a result of the war. It's much more difficult to really arouse a conscience during a time of war. I noticed the other day, some weeks ago, a Negro was shot down in Chicago and it was a clear case of police brutality. That was on page 30 of the paper, but on page one at the top was 780 Viet Khan Kiel. That is something about a war like this that makes people insensitive, it dulls the conscience, it strengthens the forces of reaction. And it brings into being bitterness and hatred and violence, and it's strengthened the military-industrial complex of our country, and it's made our job much more difficult, because I think we can go along with some programs, if we didn't have the war on our hands, that would cause people to adjust to new developments, just as they did in the South. They said they'd never ride the bus with us. Blood would flow in the streets. They wouldn't go to school and all of these things. But when people came to see that they had to do it because the law insisted, they finally adjusted. And I think white people all over this country will adjust once the nation makes it clear that in schools, in housing, we've got to learn to live together as brothers. I think the biggest problem now is that we got our gains over the last 12 years at bargain rates, so to speak. It didn't cost the nation anything. In fact, it helped the economic side of the nation to integrate lunch counters and public accommodations. It didn't cost the nation anything uh, to get uh, the right to vote established. And now we are confronting issues that cannot be solved without costing the nation billions of dollars. Now, I think this is where we're getting our greatest resistance. They may put it on many other things, but we can't get rid of slums and poverty without it costing the nation something.
0: Well, there you have it, everybody. Um, Martin Luther King Jr. Now, I know some of you probably going to have a different perspective of the late, great Martin Luther King Jr. Now, to the ones I already know that Martin Luther King Jr. was, was a realist, and you know, you didn't, um, or should I say, it wasn't the same. I have a dream, go along speech what everybody always like to bring up so i hope this um interview with uh this recorded interview uh have gave you somewhat um a different perspective you know of mlk but anyway y'all thank y'all y'all for tuning in to the Paul Anthony Walker Podcast. Look forward to, talking to y'all soon. Peace.